It comes up in almost all conversations at every family event or around the break room or when you're hanging out with friends or workers. That question is, so how's work? Then inevitably, the moaning and groaning starts. Oh man, my job sucks. Oh buddy, I hear you. You'll never guess what happened to me this week at work. Well, as a wise man once said, if you're looking for the perfect job, most likely there will never be an opening to apply for it. Now, all that being said, there are a select few of us out there that uh, may truly enjoy their job. But as they say, find something you love doing and you'll never work a day in your life. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. Oh no, we're going on a journey and we're taking you with us. Join us tonight as we interview for some of the most horrible and deadly jobs in all of history. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So a little bit of wisdom I've seen a few times on the internet, and I think would be a good way to open this particular podcast. We all complain about our jobs. Amen. I think everybody does at some point or another. I, I think prior to recording this podcast, Eric and I had a long conversation recording about my, or yeah, complain about my job. But I did see this bit of wisdom I've seen on the internet a couple of times. No matter how bad your job may be, <laughs> if you'll walk into your local pharmacy and go to where they keep the thermometers and find a rectal thermometer, mm-hmm. there's a little slip of paper or some, some label on those packages that always say 100% quality tested. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how bad your job may be, there's someone out there that's testing rectal thermometers, and I'm ha- not sure I want to know how. No, no, no. I guarantee that. Is it hey, new one- or is it used at that point? Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> one way or another, this guy's job is full of buttholes. Now so. You say guy, hey. hey. Well, it could be a woman. Yeah, it I, could be I, a woman. I don't want to discriminate. No. <laughs> <laughs> so no matter how bad your job may be, somebody's got it worse. And let me tell you, sitting down to look into the the old jobs, these jobs from history that were not great. I don't think I went back as far as Eric did on some of them, but still. We got nothing to complain about. So I didn't really do individual jobs except for in the case later on that we'll talk about, but I did look at jobs and the dangers that that old jobs had. And so exposure to to toxic chemicals, you know, we have laws that that prevent you from. That's a thing. Yeah, you're protected from that. a real thing. Uh, I had a friend who worked in a battery plant, and I mean, you had to get your blood tested for lead levels on a regular basis working there. You had a set of clothes you wore when you got to work, and then you changed into your work uniform, and then you couldn't leave the workspace in any of your work gear, so you had to leave all that behind. So, I mean, Look for at like poor, lead and things like that. Poor Homer Simpson, where he works. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's got to wear the white suit and everything. The first thing that I found was um, mercury exposure. I think we all know that mercury is toxic. You're not supposed to touch mercury. Uh, Mercury is absorbed through the skin. And if you're not 100% sure what mercury is, we call it quicksilver. And it's the little silver stuff that's in thermometers. So, you know, I guess mentioning thermometers kind of ties right into this. But mercury is absorbed through the skin, and it's incredibly dangerous. And in the 19th century, felt production involved separating uh, the fur from animal skin. And to do so, they used inorganic mercury. Now, the dangers of mercury exposure are already known at that point in time. But a lot of businesses just kept that to themselves. Looked the other way. And again, that's why we have laws that protect you from these kinds of things now. But this, of course, led to lots of workers being exposed to mercury. Now, hat makers were, were very likely to be exposed to mercury because they were using the felt that contained the mercury. And many hatters would become what, afflicted with what we would call mad hatter's disease. Mad hatter's. It's literally where the term mad as a hatter comes from. And, of course, the mad hatter from Alice in Wonderland definitely had some of these problems. But, of course, these, the hatters would unintentionally expose themselves to mercury vapors while making hats. And especially during the 19th century, they would develop neurological disorders associated with mercury poisoning, such as tremors, pathological shyness, and irritability. Now, toward the end of the century, medical studies in the U.S. and Europe identified the cause of the disease. And that led to methods being put in place to protect workers from exposure. 
and then eventually the abandonment of this particular process altogether. Now, like I said, we were talking about exposure to the elements, and I, I specifically referenced lead. The toxic effects of lead exposure have been known since ancient times, and of course that hasn't stopped people from using lead. Civilizations such as the Romans were aware of what lead poisoning was, which damages the vital organs, including the nervous system. They believe that just simply limiting exposure would be enough protection, but of course, it's not always the case. A small amount of lead exposure can lead to, to health problems. Well, of course, we had the whole deal with the uh, lead paint and everything yep. here in America during the early Victorian well, era. Well, yeah. Unintended exposure occurred frequently through the lead salts commonly used in paint. Sailors had contact with lead contaminants regularly during the 18th century. During this time, rum was distilled in stills that used lead components. The, the lead leached into the, the rum, and rum was a choice drink for sailors, and so widespread cases of lead poisoning became very common at that point. Uh, it was also common amongst slaves in the Caribbean and the American colonies who commonly drank rum as well. During the Industrial Revolution, medical workers were often exposed to lead fumes, and factories that, that universally used the durable and corrosion-resistant metal often saw their workers develop lead poisoning. And, of course, we can't forget the effects of leaded gas. In the early 1920s, tetrethyl was discovered to be an effective fuel additive, improving engine performance and reducing engine knock. I actually watched a, a documentary about that not all that long ago, and you, your car ran so much better in those early days of engine technology when you had this lead additive in your fuel. Unfortunately, workers who produced it began showing signs of lead poisoning, which was caused by the fumes, and many went insane shortly before their deaths. Despite this discovery in the 1920s, we use, kept on doing it. Use of leaded gasoline continued up until the 80s. I'm old enough to remember, you know, leaded and unleaded gas. Yep. So now, of course, the lead produced by the exhaust of vehicles still shows up in soil, buildings, and even blood samples. Funnily enough, my sister posted not that long ago on Facebook a reference to lead poisoning and the effects it has on the mind. And she goes, uh, if you think about it, all of the older generation spent most of their lives being exposed to gas, leaded gas fumes, and leaded gas exhaust. And maybe that would explain why this country just seems like it's gone insane. So, yeah, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a scary thought to think about how much potential brain damage is floating around out there. And then, I don't want to make it, well, I was going to say something political, but this is not the place. <laughs> Well, you had touched base on mercury poisoning and with the, uh, especially the felt hats, the top hats, the style, you know, the Mad Hatter deal. Actually, that is part of why they start putting the, uh, the leather ring on the inside of the hat is when the patron, the owners would wear it and they would perspire that reactivated that touching their forehead. So they put the small leather ring around it. So oh. you're wearing this crown of poison, if you will, <laughs> but you got just this little leather strip there that'll help protect you. So it'll be okay. I want to take one of those stories a little bit further. Uh, and again, it's going back with mercury. I don't know if some of our listeners might have heard of the Ormolu, uh, or as it's sometimes called, the death clock. Popular in the early 1800s until they were totally outlawed uh, about 30 years later in 1830. Now, you might ask, what is Ormolu? Well, that is a cast metal clock, a figurine, uh, anything actually, that is, has a bronze or gold gilding applied to it at the time. Back in the early 1800s, esteemed clockmakers would hire the poor to work in their foundries. They would acquire a sculpture, uh, then cast a wax mold, followed by a plaster mold uh, from that. They would then smelt metal up to 900 degrees and pour it into those plaster molds. Obviously, that would melt away all the wax. Once this cured, the plaster would then be chiseled away to reveal this metal casting. Uh, which in turn would be cleaned and, you know, final carving touches, you know, touch-ups and stuff would be done. Now, these were usually very elaborate, uh, like colonial-looking men and women, you know, full-blown dresses, the, even the guys wearing the big curly hair, you know, and all this kind of stuff, the suits, the jackets. And they would be, like, positioned maybe for a mantle clock, you know, kind of like pointing to it or whatever. The entire clock, minus the workings, the inside internal workings, would be dipped into mercury. Then by hand, no gloves, these poor workers would take bronze and or gold dust and literally just kind of like paste it, stick it, and apply it to the sculpt. The mercury had a, a strange way to consume this gold and bronze, and almost like a magnet. 
So these workers would literally just splash this mercury liquid and powdered gold and bronze all oh. over it with their bare hands. And then it gets better. They would take it to burn off in ovens or kilns in unventilated rooms where the mercury would just burn off. Now, obviously, it goes somewhere. It goes into the atmosphere to now be inhaled by said workers. Uh, the powder, the gold, the bronze would then solidify and make a hardening coat over this entire clock or the figure. Now, obviously, as we have touched upon, mercury is very poison. Yeah, well, it's absorbed through the skin, so exactly. any kind of contact. Whether it be by skin contact or breathing. Uh, some of this, as Bill alluded to, was, was known. But the, the wealthy kind of looked the other way as these poor workers began to drop dead by the dozens. You know, after all, they were poor. They just make more. I mean, it, there's always more poor people. Isn't that just the way of things, though? Like, I mean, it really, even today, you know, rich people work poor people to death and they don't care. There's they don't just, care. There's more poor people. So, yeah. yeah. Poor people make more. But it, yeah, it was like people perishing left and right. There was one story that had a wealthy family. Didn't say the name of the family, but they were having this clock made for a special occasion. Now, these clocks might take, you know, several months to even a year, depending on how lavish the, the sculpture was. But unfortunately, their worker that was working on their clock died before it was completed. So the wealthy went to the clock company and, you know, basically said, you, you promised me this clock. You know, let's, let's say it was a Christmas gift, anniversary, whatever. This date is approaching and it's, you know, it's not done. And the owner of the clock company said, you know, fear not. I'll hire two poor people to come in and we will get a jump start and we will finish the order for you. I mean, that, that's just, that's the way things were. But, you know, after all this, there was always more poor, as I said, looking for a job to replace the ones that perished. Often they didn't share this information. They didn't know what they were signing up for. They were just trying to provide for their families. But that's why these mantle clocks were often called death clocks. Uh, as I said, it might take months to craft one of these from start to finish, possibly even a year. And in doing so, it probably costs some poor sap his life or her life during that time frame. So you could have that beautiful mantle clock up on your fireplace mantle. One of my favorite fictional bands is called Death Clock. So. <laughs> Ooh, kind of puts that in a new perspective. Just to go back for a moment and speak about lead exposure, I'm going to tie this into one of our favorite hobbies. I believe miniatures oh, that yes. they used to use for tabletop gaming were made of lead at one point. I wonder if that kind of led to some of the I still the have, stories. I still have some of those in cases. Uh, you know, we we don't handle. So you're not those. chewing on them. I'm anymore. not chewing on them anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that explains a lot. But yes, they were they were made of lead. Uh, yeah, those but, little lead soldiers. I I don't know that I ever had exposure to some. I know that I had handled some miniatures back in the 80s. I don't know when they switched from lead. I no. think it was by mid 80s. Definitely by later 80s. You know, they were they were starting to shift, but. Yeah, those early, early miniatures. And as you said, I mean, going all the way back to colonial times, there was the little soldiers. Those yeah. were pure, pure lead. Now, as as much as we can try to keep an upbeat rhythm for this podcast, since uh, it is called, you know, Deadly Old Jobs. Uh, uh, on, a, on a podcast called Nightmares. Nightmares. You know, there's, there's only so much we can do, folks. But we, we, we're trying to bring a little bit of uh, interest here. So I, I found an old story. And this is the story of the high priest of Diana, the, the Roman goddess. Now, her temple was there on the shores of Lake Nimini, uh, and if you had this job as the single high priest, you could expect one way to get out of that job, and that is to be killed by the next up-and-coming aspiring priest, for that was how they proved their worth, by slaying the previous priest. In your reward for taking the role of this new job, you had to obviously slay the prede you know, your, your predecessor, so you knew about this job when you were coming into it. <laughs> Man, it's a heck of an exit plan. Yep. Uh, hey, you'll never guess what job I landed. You know, <laughs> wow. Okay. In your reward for taking this role, this new job, you would be there clutching your sword, drawn constantly, your eyes peering into the shadows for the inevitable, you know, next contestant coming to, to take your life. For the high priestess of Diana, in the immortal words of the Highlander, would say, there can be only one. The Temple of Diana, Nimerescence, was constructed some 300 years B.C. along the shores of Lake Nimini, which I had said before, in which it derives a portion of its name. The temple was about 16 miles west of Rome, just far enough that it kept a lot of the riffraff away, but still close enough for true followers to make that trek. And Diana was a very important part of the Roman pantheon, with her being over such things as the hunt, the nature, and birth. 
a favorite goddess for young couples and new expecting mothers who brought treasures which included jewelry and statues and figurines, hoping that they might gain the favor of Diana. That's where the high priest would come in. The followers had to give these donations to that one high priest, and then in turn, he would divulge their wishes to the one that he served. Why is there always got to be a middleman I know, between right? people and their God? That doesn't, that doesn't seem, I don't know, not up my alley for sure. <laughs> a unique qualification for this high priest was that the role had to be filled by a runaway slave. Now, this kind of adds a little bit of why in the world would anybody want this job? Well, if you were already a runaway slave, obviously, <laughs> as the name implies, run away, uh, you were being sought after. You were going to most likely be killed. But hey, you could live in you know, luxury for a few months, maybe a few years, maybe even a decade if you were really good. So it had to be filled by a runaway slave. That was number one qualification. Uh, this might, as I said, kind of help explain why not so many wanted the job. But again, if you were a runaway slave, you're going to take whatever you can get. It also helps to explain why free men and royalty didn't interfere with the process. Uh, for even though a runaway slave might gain a power for a few years, ultimately death would become upon them. So ultimately, even in their eyes, the slave would be slain. So leave it alone. It, you know, long, you know, long gates out, maybe one poor guy that escaped a little bit more. As these runaway slaves would arrive at the shrine of Diana to mark their intentions, they would break off an oak branch from a tree outside in the sacred grove and bring it in as an offering to Diana there in the temple. Because obviously, if you're a runaway slave, you, you don't have a lot. So you're going to go snap off a branch and take it in there. And this is what I want to do. Here's my stick. Here's my stick. Then the reigning high priest would also see this challenge. And in his role, he had to accept this challenge. Is this, I mean, does this lead to a fight to the death? Yes. Kind of? Oh, okay. I Yes. I just thought it was ultimate like ultimate wrestling, if you will. Well, I, just, I just thought it was like, okay, my time is up. So oh no 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 no, no, no. Is, this is violent. Yes. <laughs> so the high priest had to accept any challenge that was laid before them, hoping they were still young and spry and strong enough to defend their seat. How unsettling would this role be? You would be afraid to sleep and on your guard all the time to defend not only the seat of the high priest and protect Diana but with your own life. As once a challenge was made, it could only be satisfied by yourself or challenger in a fight to the death. <laughs> How and why this particular job and process came into existence will probably never fully be understood. But as winter must give way to spring, the old high priest must also give way to the young and cunning new high priest. You think your job sucks? I used to joke around, it's how, that's how management positions should work although <laughs> although mine was more like a wrestling thing where like if you you could win the title but you didn't have to kill the guy oh, oh but if you were you were good enough to win the title you know then you could so i talked a little bit about exposure already i want to talk about some more exposures that happened in these old-timey dangerous jobs phosphorus exposure in the late 19th and early 20th centuries the match industry used white phosphorus uh, and it was typically women who worked in the factories and they would often work without proper safeguards leading exposure to phosphorus in the form of vapor. Workers would begin complaining of toothaches and a swelling of the gums, which would eventually lead to abscesses and a greenish-white glow in the affected bones. Oh, these whiny workers. Well, phosphorus, I mean, Jeez. that's where we get the term phosphorescent, so. The condition also caused serious brain damage, and with the removal of affected tissue being the only option to prevent death. Eesh. So imagine that. You, your teeth mm. are glowing, your gums are all messed up, and then the doctor says, well, we got to take all that out. Mm. That's bad. I mean, I got a, I got a couple of teeth that got to come out now, and I'm dreading that. And those are for my own good, you know, well-being. So, radium exposure was was another issue. Uh, radium was commonly used in paints for its luminescent properties. So, radium, like phosphor, you know, it glowed. So they would often use it, especially during the late 19th and early 20th century. It was used by uh, widely by women in factories which uh, they would use to paint the glowing hands on watch dials, the Ooh. phosphorescent watch hands. So is this what some of our toys in the early 80s were made of? That I would glowed assume the by then that's not the case. Okay. But now You're workers, spooking me out here, <laughs> Workers were told the paint was harmless. Oh, trust me, if you'd been exposed, you would know. Just, just bear with me here. Workers were told the paint was harmless, so the women would often lick their paint brushes to give them the fine point needed to paint Oh my Yeah, the gosh. little watch hands. 
Uh, they would even paint their fingernails and teeth with the substance because it was, you know, it glowed. It was really Why neat. Why not? That's cool. Unfortunately, this led to a lot of watch dial makers uh, ingesting deadly amounts of radium. Literally taking it almost yeah. like scooping it up and eating it. Yeah. Uh, ca- this caused acute radiation syndrome, anemia, and bone fractures, among other conditions. After five women challenged their employer, and these workers would become known as the Radium Girls, their case established the right of workers who contracted occupational diseases to sue the company and the employers that they worked for. One of the most disturbing conditions suffered is known as radium jaw. I, I can't tell you not to Google radium jaw, but if you do, be prepared. It is, you, these pictures are terrible. But it, it caused a necrosis of the jaw because of exposure to radium and involved a constant bleeding of the gums and occasionally severe distortion due to bone tumors and porosity of the lower jaw. I mean, some of these women, their jaws were just so horribly, uh, yeah, again, I, I don't recommend searching for that. And of course, another thing that we're very familiar with these days, asbestos exposure. Right. It was commonly used as insulation for electrical wiring in buildings during the 19th century. I think even today, if you're going to do demolition on an older building, you have to have people come in and make sure there's no asbestos. Either remove it or encapsulate it. <laughs> yeah, it has to be contained. Uh, breathing the, the fibers of asbestos causes cancer. So, you know, it, it was eventually discovered to be carcinogenic. And those exposed to the material over a long period of time would often contract asbestosis, a chronic inflammatory and scarring lung disease, which would lead also to certain types of lung cancer, namely mesothelioma. I mean, I'm sure you're old enough to remember the commercials. I remember the TV commercials, yeah. Have you been uh, exposed to asbestos? My grandfather died of emphysema, and he was a merchant marine, and we found out much later that during his career, he routinely transported asbestos. Well, at so, that time frame, they, they literally put it in everything. Oh yeah, it, was everything. it was like the miracle of miracles. Well, it was it was flame resistant, which is part of the reason it was used. Uh, they literally made clothing out of asbestos for like firefighters and things at one point. Yeah. Imagine, I mean, selling it as this will help save your life. And they put it in insulation and stuff in schoolhouses and, yeah. and stuff to protect from fires. And here, this will not save your life. Well, I mean- it will save your life from something. Something. Of course, it'll cause it you to die in another in way. End. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to burn to death, but, you know, cancer. Spit if you had to take it, if you had to pick one or the other. Ugh. Yeah, I've, I've known too many people that have, have succumbed to cancer, and it is a horrible way to, to go. I would, not that I want to burn to death by any means, but, you know, whatever I can do to not get cancer seems high on the list. Well, it just goes to show you, uh, as smart as we think we are as a population as humans how dumb we we are you know, i mean that's the same thing like with the with the big boom with the the orphanages and there wasn't enough you know nursing mothers so they they developed milk and gave it to the babies by the thousands and it wasn't pasteurized so it killed babies by the thousands you know you, you think you're doing something good and yeah it didn't work out well, that way all the know, time but live and learn is the case live well, and learn okay live might live be. and die and learn, learn. more Live and kill and learn and... <laughs> wow. Well, I've got another story here. How would you like the job for a body collector for the plague? Well, you're really going back. I'm going back. You're the there. history guy. I am so. the historian. <laughs> Mid-13th century brought with it the horrific Black Plague or the Black Death, as it was known. The disease that swept through the streets and countrysides rampant as one of the largest killing diseases of all time. It dropped its shadow across all of Europe, which wiped out 50%, half of all citizens. Yet even with this death and despair, a group of enterprising risk-takers developed a way to take advantage of this, all puns intended, grave time in history. Whoa. 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 I wasn't ready for that. Wasn't ready for that one, (laughs) were you? There's a dad joke for you. One that paid quite well out of fear. These people were simply known as the corpse collectors. These risk-taking entrepreneurs would do just that. In a hand-drawn, or sometimes horse-drawn, wagon, they would make their rounds through the countryside and cities, scooping up the corpses and loading them in the back of their wagon. Now, of course, I'm going to go back to Monty Python. Monty Python. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Ding, ding, ding. For a fee, the corpse collectors would come and remove the rotting, diseased bodies, which were known to be spreading the disease to the living, and they would be whisked away to mass graves dotting the countrysides. 
With the corpses literally piling up, it was never-ending battle that made uh, special favor trips to families that paid the most for priority. They were making money hand over fist. While undoubtedly one of the best-paying jobs of that century, it was not without cost and its own risk. This exposed these corpse collectors to literally thousands of diseased, infested bodies daily. Now, how did the guy who was collecting the bodies avoid getting sick? They made money for their families, Bill. They didn't necessarily (laughs) get to enjoy it, a lot of them themselves. They did take some precautions. I don't mean this to sound mockingly, but it's going to. Like with the COVID-19, let's wear a small paper tissue over our face. They did do some of that. Eric, that saved so many lives. It did, obviously. You know, It certainly kept me from getting COVID three times. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me, 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 yeah, yeah. Again, these were poor people. They just took advantage of the situation. So they did not, obviously. One, they didn't understand safety and protocol back then. But, I mean, I, I can imagine them literally tying a piece of cloth around their face or whatever. And They said most of that was to avoid the stench more so than anything of the rotting corpses. So like you said, these guys were making money for their family. They just worked until they got the disease, and then they're like, I just have this vision of the guy just being like, well, throws himself on the car. Yep. <laughs> Not feeling so well. Now, back in autumn of 1347, this is kind of where it starts, a seemingly normal ship docked in Sicily. Little did the sailors on board know, their storage holes were filled with tiny stowaways, infected rats that would end up delivering the Black Death Plague, taking the lives of some 200 million people in its wake over the next four years. So again, this wasn't like, hey, in eight months, this will be over in a year. Four years this drudged on. So... The corpse collectors were very, very busy. And again, bodies are piling up, but hey, the wealthiest family that pays the most will come and pick up your deceased first. Again, another job where the rich are paying money to kill poor people. Yes, yes. There were many people at the time that truly believed this was the apocalypse forewarned in the Bible, and you can understand and see why. It was made painfully clear in reading the diary of an Irish scholar as he recorded the whole ordeal until his own very death. He documented to the best of his abilities reports and cases across Europe until his last inscription. And you can tell how foreboding this is in his mind. I write my last words for in case there are any survivors left to make read of it in the future. He's thinking it's the end of the world. To add insult to injury with uh, religious practices, before this event... The religious practice very stern burial rites with uh, individual graves buried near churches and graveyards and often officiated by uh, monks. And in particular, the, this particular region, they had 13 monks that kind of did just that. However, with the monks being directly in contact with the disease so early on, they were the most common hit with the disease. And due to the sheer volume, the bodies were literally piling up when you would call and say, hey, I've got a body and all the monks are out sick. No employees are here. Sound familiar? You know, (laughs) this this is weird. What what, what do they say? History doesn't always repeat, but it sometimes rhymes. Rhymes, mimics, yeah. The cold hard facts became very present. You know, the religion had to kind of take a back seat to necessity to keep more from becoming infected. And for the first time, mass graves were approved by the church body and the various different religious followers. So out the door, literally in a period of four years or less, you know, this, this person has to be buried this particular way to just dig a hole and throw as many bodies in as we can and we'll cover it and, and move on because it's spreading like wildfire. It got to the point where even the corpse collectors couldn't keep up. So there was the stench of rotting flesh, it is said, that could be smelt from city miles away. With every death just became the possibility of multiple more deaths. So when the price could not be paid for the corpse collectors, people would just make piles of corpses outside their houses in the streets and set them on fire with lantern oil, which would smolder and burn for days which added to the hellish apocalyptic setting, along with the creation of what we call plague doctors. I'm sure you're familiar, those long-snouted masks, often raven, bird-like. They would fill those with herbs and tobacco, uh, smoldering lit to try to protect the wearer, but also as a way, as I said, to kind of throw off the stench that was around that the plague doctors, this was another life for them, and they often also were very exposed. 
Now, the corpse collector position was hated by all. Let me, let me sternly put that in there. They were not seen as heroes, but seen as people taking advantage of grieving or sickly families to haul off their deceased loved ones, which that's what they're doing. So, I yeah. mean, in a way, isn't that still what the funerary services are doing to this day? I mean, how much does a funeral cost? Come on. Yeah, you, you make a good point. You make a good point. Of course, now I'm not going to be able to be buried. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes it, it was like these bodies were unfortunately being treated like a slab of meat or, or refuge or trash. It was a necessity. The demeanor was made even worse when many would spend their earned coins, as these corpse collectors I'm talking about, they would go into public pubs and brothels and become drunk, talking about the money they had made that day or that week. And they would throw insults and often swing their swords at patrons. One depiction was even said, look, I know I'm affected. If you come close to me, I'll lick you. Ugh. It was not a good look, and it was definitely not a good job. So I said I would get into more specific jobs as this progressed. I'm going to talk about mining a little bit. One is, is kind of obvious. I think most people know about it, but the other is a little lesser known. Coal miners have long suffered from different respiratory diseases caused by the breathing of coal dust. And uh, the most common element that affects them, of course, is coal miners' pneumoconiosis, I believe is how you say it, or the black lung, of course. The black lung is just much easier. Yeah. And of course, that, that occurs when coal dust accumulates in the lungs. Uh, and is unable to be removed from the body, and it leads to inflammation, fibrosis, and necrosis of the lung tissue. Now, despite advances in the methods to limit exposure to coal dust, it's estimated that 25,000 coal workers die from the disease each year, even today. Wow. So it still continues to be a problem. Now, salt mining, I don't think a lot of people think about salt mining, but it isn't much better, if at all. Uh, breathing in the air of a salt mine induces such severe dehydration in miners that it is said to take off even more years of your life than coal mining does. Literally being mummified as you were. Yeah. A 2016 study of 2,000 ancient Roman skeletons found that salt mining was the largest reason the average Roman worker died at the age of 30. and was also the reason why so many suffered from arthritis at the end of their lives. Salt mining is especially susceptible to carbon dioxide and methane gas exposure as well. Now, I went to Kansas. For vacation, Ooh, I'm a big spender, right? <laughs> we we had planned to go to- We have listeners in Kansas, but- Well, I know, but I'm just saying. I'm saying, I live in Missouri. I went to Kansas for vacation. Oh, okay, okay, so. okay, okay. But uh, we went to a, a salt mine up not too far from um, Kansas City, I think in Atchison, I think it is. I didn't even know there was a salt mine in Kansas. It's called Estradica, and I would actually recommend, if you if you find yourself in the neighborhood of it, to go ahead and do the tour. We did the tour. Now, I have a fear of heights. I haven't, I don't know if I've talked about that before, but you get on an elevator and before you get on the elevator, there's a sign that tells you how far down you're going to go. This elevator goes down further than the height of the St. Louis arch. Wow. So immediately I'm like, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> I paid money for this. And then I'm trying to back out. Are of we it. there yet? Are well, we there yet? We got to tour a salt mine, which was very interesting. There's a, uh, some displays and they talk about the process and then you drive in a little buggy that goes and shows you the, the salt mine and different features of the salt mine. One of the things that I found concerning, to say the least, is apparently salt mines are always collapsing uh, just because of the pressure of the earth and the fact that you're clearing it out. So it, it showed multiple places where they had measured, you know, the amount of, of drift in the, the ceiling, which was kind of, you know, concerning. Disturbing. But uh, it turns out abandoned salt mines are fantastic places to store uh, items that you don't want to decay. Makes perfectly good sense. Because, again, it's a salt mine. There's very, very little moisture in the air. Now, I can't say that I myself felt like I experienced that kind of dehydration, but uh, it was an interesting experience, to say the least. So uh, I believe, like I said, I think it's Atchison. So if you're, if you're in the hmm. area, it's something I would recommend. I've told people, like, it doesn't sound that interesting, but, but honestly, my kids thought it was probably the coolest part of that vacation. So Now, I'm not going to get off to here too much, but on the salt mine, were people like with pick and axes, or is it more well, no, like robotic, you know, yeah. no, generated like now? Modern mining is done with big old machines and it just kind of grinds it up. And, but yeah, there were videos of course of I'm the sure old back days. in the day, yeah. yeah, you got your little tin bucket and maybe, you know, ching, ching. And the, one of the things that was very fascinating was like, again, I said like things don't decay because it's such a dry environment. They had like where like the old miners had been accumulating trash in a particular location and found cigarette packs with like, you know, 1800 dates or something on them. Oh, like wow. they, they'd been there forever. 
So I was going to move on to talk about chimney sweeps, and I think we both have some information yeah, on yeah. that. You go ahead and take it, and I'll interject here and there. So in the days before child labor laws, children were commonly used as chimney sweeps. Sure, why not? I say used. I don't want to say employed. <laughs> used. It doesn't seem right. I was thinking, wow, they were <laughs> used. Okay. Uh, and this would include children as young as four years old due to their small size and the ability to fit inside said chimney. How lucky. Yeah. Well, of course, these were confined spaces, so that meant children were usually unable to see, barely able to breathe, and in precarious situations where if one little slip and they could just fall to their deaths, and that would be it. Um, these, are, again, were, were depictions of poor children, yeah. usually from orphans. You know, so we, if you we lose one, we can have yeah. another one here by the end of the hour. Yeah. To make matters worse, they would typically have to work naked, so that doesn't make anything any Ooh. better. Now, adult chimney sweeps would commonly find their underage apprentices either by buying them from their parents or orphanages or just by out-and-out out kidnapping them. Y y so. Yeah. And, of course, that, you know, things being what they were, adult chimney sweeps would resort to some really unsavory tactics to make sure that these kids did their jobs. One thing they would do would be to starve the children to keep them small enough to fit inside the chimneys. And I was also going to add a lot of them coming from orphanages or homeless. You know, they already experienced malnourishment. So yeah, this is that instance, you know, hey, all you poor kids line up on here. I want the scrawniest one of you where instead of the strongest one, you know, they're thinking, oh, little Billy got a job. <laughs> He's the smallest little well, one in the block. And again, we're talking about people with money exploiting poor people. Yeah. So. But also, in order to make them climb chimneys faster and to get better at it, they would have them start to go up the chimney. they go ahead and light a fire in the fireplace. <laughs> That'll make them work faster. Yeah, that's just something crazy. This will loosen some of that up for you. <laughs> Hold your breath. Yeah, I actually had where, in some instances, they would tie a rope around, like, their midsection and down one leg. So if they got stuck, you they know, just yank them, just out. Yank them oh, out. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh. Now, uh, according to a Swedish study... Being a chimney sweep was expected to take 11 to 12 years off of a person's life. Soot from the chimneys w was also a cause of a very nasty variation of skin cancer, which was called squamous cell carcinoma, and it typically developed, and I, and I hope you found this because otherwise I'm going to, otherwise you're going to react, would typically start on the scrotum. I did not find that, but I also did not find they were usually naked when they yeah, were well, working either. So Imagine skin uh, cancer. Uh, oh. uh. In 1775, 1775, it became the first form of cancer to be linked to a specific occupation. Now, eventually, this cancer would spread to the rest of the abdomen and prove fatal. Protective clothing was later developed to pre prevent the disease. And that's where we got cups. No, no, I think that's different. <laughs> this becomes such a common practice using kids that a law was evoked in Europe in 1845, and it was found as cruel treatment for children. Imagine that. But still, no. <laughs> it worked so well, many Victorian aristocrats would just, again, look the other way and just continue doing it for another decade until even a firmer law was evoked. And then by the 1860s, this is how long this has went on, the practice was pretty much dismissed. And we went to the typical chimney sweep with the brushes and the long handles that you would reach down. Now, this really kind of changes... Like, like we have this romanticized vision of the chimney sweep from Mary Poppins. Well, of course. Imagine if instead of dancing with, you know, Dick Van Dyke in a bunch of lovable chimney sweeps, she was dancing with a bunch of naked kids Ugh. and they're essentially slave masters. Wow. That would be, a, yeah, it, it, it's a good thing Mary Poppins wasn't realistic. Let's just say that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Disney, for, <laughs> for correcting. Well, not correcting, but hiding the yeah. truth from us. Yeah, that would have been a whole different movie. I've got another one. Uh, it's not so much that the job was death-defying, but think about how it would handle your psyche. And that is a Victorian death photographer. The Victorians had a strange addiction to death. They made wreaths of hair taken from the dead and put it in shadow boxes to hang over the beds of their homes. They also used deceased loved ones' hair to make lovely floral arrangements or even braided dolls that could be given to infants to play with as a piece of grandmother or great-grandmother could be kept with them. I think we talked about having human remains in your house when we did the King Tut's tomb. Very That's, much into ugh. the Egyptianology, yes. yes. But probably one of the most disturbing, I think, would have to be the Victorian death photography for the extremely wealthy. Post-mortem portraits were all the rage. 
Now, you must remember the original studio photography card, those you might have seen in, they're on cardstock, kind of a hard cardboard at your local antique shop. That was still a new technology, a new creation for the most part. So photographs of families were still very expensive, uh, semi-common because of that value, and only still the, the upper middle to rich class would, would ever have. However, when you die, well, then even if you would have never had your photo taken in the living, meaning that I don't want my photograph taken regardless of how wealthy, all bets are off. Now your kids can prop you up in a corner, dress you up, maybe put a book in your lap as you sit in a chair, and take a photograph of you whether you wanted your photo taken or not. Well, this was a new way to take the memory of an image of a loved one and share it with others for years to come. And to be quite honest, it still creeps us out today when we come across those. For this particular job of taking photographs of the dead, it would vary in many degrees. In simplest form, you simply posed a person in bed as if they were asleep and you take their photo. But this is also where the first first practices of what would later become a mortician embalmer would begin by adding makeup and paint to the face to create rosy cheeks and more lifelike presentations. Even in black and white, obviously this wasn't color time frame, but it would add a more lifelike appeal. Still, it didn't stop there. For those who went to specialized schools to learn about death photography, the special elite photographers would learn ways to pose the body naturally, even getting them to stand up or set up. The quality of life at this time was horrible. The average life expectancy was only about 40 years of age. It was a time of cholera, measles, the scarlet fever, and treatments and medicine were still in their infancy in treating such afflictions. And so it would wipe out the youngest and the oldest of the entire household sometimes. Sometimes even taking multiple children within days from one household family. It was especially these type post-mortem photos today that we find most disturbing. Perhaps a beach scene or a picnic in the backyard where the living and dead would pose together. In some cases with three or four young children would be posed playing with toys while sitting on a blanket among the food of the picnic basket as the living passed around a sandwich over top of them. While quite disturbing today at the time, this was a calming way of coping with loss and quite therapeutic for the Victorian era. Now, to dial up the creepy factor on this strange job, as that could even be more possible, during the time frame of the early 1800s, deceased infants in particular, but also small children, might be brought in suitcases as luggage oh, of the family to the photographer's studio in the city. Imagine boarding a train or Maybe in a wagon at that time, but uh, you know, loading your deceased infant or child or children and taking them into the city for that one last photo. I know how I handle my luggage when I'm on vacation. Sometimes you just kind of throw it around. I can't imagine. <laughs> Can you imagine them losing the luggage? Oh, my gosh. They're going to have a spoiler when they open that up. We lost your suitcase. Oh, my God. My kid's in there. Yeah. Here, the photographer would often pose the living mother holding a deceased infant or even siblings that might be dressed like that of their deceased brother or sister. Now, we talked about losing the kid in the suitcase. You're bringing your live children to be posed with their dead sibling dressed alike. <laughs> yeah, honey, just go over there and do what the photographer tells you to do. The family would often braid or comb their loved one's hair and dress them for that one last family photo to share through the ages. Some of the deceased eyes would be opened, even propping them, gluing them sometimes with wires or sticks. Still other photographers would offer to paint over the closed eyes to add pupils and give that more lifelike appeal. Talk about a bad day at work. Ugh. You go home, you're sitting there with your wife around the table, your kids are looking up at you with their big sad eyes, and daddy, how was your day? Well, unfortunately... We lost one child in a suitcase, his family brought it in, and uh, yeah, we had a family of four, and I did this, and I had to paint eyeballs on their pupil, or, you know, pupils on their eyelids, and wow. And, I mean, I feel like to make matters worse, photography at that point in time, it wasn't, you know, point and click. And, oh, um, no. You had to sit for the portrait. That's where we get the term sitting for a portrait. You had to sit for, what is it? It's, it's a certain amount of time. I don't remember how long it was. Several minutes. And that's why like everybody looks so angry in old photographs because you didn't want to smile. Don't move. Well, yeah, you didn't want to smile because your facial muscles would cramp up on you. You wouldn't be able to maintain it. And so, yeah, it's not like 
you could just cringe for a minute and get it over with. You know what I mean? Just like, you know, lean in for a second and then it's done. No, you had to sit there for like a while. So surrounded by deceased and or maybe holding them. But I think the most disturbing of all that was the, I, I saw some family photos with both living and deceased, the picnic, and they were passing food around and actually like looked like partaking and eating. And it's, it, that is where some of like the Memorial Day traditions come from. And, you know, back, I know like my grandmother on my mom's side, she was really big about going on Memorial Day and they would have picnics and, you know, they would bring out food and it was a celebration. Sometimes they'd play music and, and stuff at the, at the graveyard, which I thought was even a little strange. Yeah, that's a little weird. But nowhere near this level of strange. So the last job that I have is, uh, is whaling. Whaling. Now, when I, when I decided to pick whaling, I was initially thinking about crab fishing. So uh, bear with me here, and I can explain how I got from A to B on that. I really like the show Deadliest Catch. I could watch that show all day long. I've got absorbed in more than a sitting, few seasons yeah, of that. And just watch those guys and just think about how deadly, how dangerous that is. And then, of course, when you realize that those guys go out and when they come back from a trip, they make as much in one trip as I make yeah, all year. In a, maybe in a month or whatever. Yeah, so you're I'm, making an annual salary. I'm sure that, you know, for the risks that come with it, they're compensated, but maybe not enough. But just to be fascinated by the amount of danger. But, of course, that is a show that, that happens today. That's a modern thing. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, surely there was a type of fishing or something in history. And then my mind made a dick to whaling and yeah I, i'll talk about that in a moment but whaling surely had to be brutal and dangerous so i started looking it up and yeah no it, it wasn't it I wasn't fun just by some of the antique photos and or paintings they're tiny little boats it looks like out there and the whale is yes. much larger than that little boat so during the 1800s whaling was a dangerous and brutal profession now the the dangers of the job included obviously death by drowning injury or disease and even whale attacks on the boats sent to capture them. But hunting whales involved long months of boredom at sea with nothing to do, followed by moments of extreme danger and chaos while the hunt was on. Herman Melville's novel Moby Dick, like you said, was based on a true story of whaling. The novel tells the epic story of a sea captain's obsession with capturing a giant whale that ultimately wrecks the captain's boat and kills most of his crew. This was based on a real incident that occurred in the South Pacific in 1820 when the whaling ship Essex was sunk by an enraged whale that rammed the ship not once, but twice. Now, this whale was going to sink that boat. While Captain George Pollard and much of the crew were already in the longboats from hunting the whale, the remaining crew members got into the lifeboats and quickly salvaged whatever they could before the ship sank. Now, what followed in real life was a story of starvation, cannibalism, and for Pollard and the only survivor on his boat, 89 days at sea before rescue. Three other crewmen were rescued a week before Pollard, 300 miles away. Now, many ships were lost at sea due to storms and severe climate conditions. And of course, a crewman could slip and fall overboard or break his limbs on the deck because the the decks were perpetually slick with oil and water. And rough seas or an injured panicked whale could capsize the faster and smaller longboats uh, that were used to pursue the whale once it was spotted. And if a sailor went overboard, it was highly unlikely they'd be able to rescue him. Now, hunting and killing whales on the open sea, again, at that point in time, very, very dangerous. The first part of the hunt involved impaling the whale from a distance of about 10 yards with a thrown harpoon. So he's got to throw it. Yeah. And this harpoon is, of course, tied to the boat. So once you hit the whale. It's not going to be still. To fill in a small detail so you can explain where I'm getting to, Nantucket was the center of the whaling industry in the 18th and 19th centuries. And this is where the term Nantucket sleigh ride originates, which I had not heard. <laughs> but apparently, this is what happens after you harpoon a whale. They called it the Nantucket sleigh ride. And the whale would attempt to escape its attacker by dragging the boat for miles at speeds of up to 20 miles an hour or more. Wow. Hang on tight. Obviously, the whale at this point is just trying to escape whatever, you know, these, these people that are trying to harpoon it. Uh, the whales would either, sometimes the whales would thrash wildly, endangering the whalers in the boats, uh, or sometimes they would attempt to dive as deeply as possible. Now remember, the boat is tied to the harpoon, which is stuck in the whale. So if he decides he's going to dive, well, you've got to cut that rope it. quick. Yeah. The, the crew would just let the whale tire itself out, and eventually it would just stop. Uh, about that point, as long as the whale was still impaled, 
they would then begin using lances, sharpened, you know, basically just bigger versions of harpoons, to try to cut the neck arteries with the intent of forcing the creature to bleed to death. Mm. And that would usually take about an hour, because you imagine an animal as big as a whale. It ain't going down quick. So eventually the, the whale would finally die and roll over onto its back. And that process was known as the Nantucket Sleigh Ride. Wow. And I imagine it was quite, that had to be nerve-wracking. That kind of horrifying if you think about it. So once the dead whale was hauled in and secured beside the whaling ship, the entire crew began the process of converting the whale into workable pieces. First, the whale's blubber would be carved into long strips and tossed up onto the deck, where other crew members would chop the blubber into smaller pieces and then toss it into kettles used to boil the blubber for oil. Now, of course, these are lit fires on a wooden ship. So that, that probably came with its own risks. And then boiling oil on top of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bones would be scraped and then set out to dry so that they could be processed into usable products. And while hanging off the side of the ship, the crews would use what they called monkey belts, which was just basically they were tied around the waist, hanging off the side of the ship, butchering this whale. We got your back. If you fell, you, you were probably done. You, you were either going to drown or, as one can assume, chopping up a whale, blood leaking into the ocean. Sharks. You would be devoured by the, for, the swarm of sharks below that are just trying to get their little piece of the action. And as if all that wasn't bad enough, it really didn't pay that well. The captain would receive about a one-eighth percentage of the profits. An average crewman would receive one-three-hundred-fiftieth of the profit. What? And because whaling voyages lasted so long, sometimes several years, they would incur expenses while they were on the boat. There were things they had to buy on the boat that would include clothing, boots, tobacco, things like that. So if everything added up, sometimes their wages might be as little as $25. And if the mission was not successful, if they didn't bring enough, you know, whale back, a sailor might end up owing money to the company when it was all said and done. Wow. So imagine that. You're out on a whale boat for years and you come back and you owe money because you went on the trip. Well, yeah. And I mean, let's face it. You're out hunting for a whale. It's like hunting for anything. Sometimes you, you can hunt yeah. and hunt and hunt and you just don't find one. Well, and, and like in Pollard's case, I guess he uh, eventually did go back to whaling and then he crashed a ship on a shoal. And he was blackballed from the industry. They considered him cursed. So his whole livelihood was just out the window because of a couple of bad goes. But yeah, you're out there for years. And then in the end, you owe. It's not like you were going on vacation. This was a working trip. Wow. Bill, is it time? Is it time for headlines? Yes. So my headline is from USA Today, dated March 2nd, 2023. The headline is, what are America's most dangerous jobs? Search our database of deadliest occupations. Why not? By Jamie Frazier. You know, I, I stumbled upon this while searching for dangerous jobs, and I thought, well, if we're going to talk about the dangerous jobs that used to be, let's talk about the dangerous jobs that are. Hold on. You mean there's still dangerous jobs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> so this data comes from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it provides a look at the risks faced by American workers. Now, obviously, over the years, workplace injuries have been on the decline. As we develop new safety precautions and better training to protect the workers. But, of course, some professions are still going to have more danger than others. Now, USA Today ranked these using the federal statistics. And they, they had the 25 most dangerous jobs in private industry. Now, I went with the 10 most dangerous and then I just kind of listed off everything after that. Uh, now, these, these death rates are from 2021, which I believe are the most recent available numbers. So, number one, tree trimmers and pruners. I most can dangerous see job. why, yeah. Uh, has the highest rate of work-caused deaths and ranks 76th for non-fatal workplace injuries. The fatality rate is 21 times higher than the average American job, with the most common cause of death being falls, falling tree limbs, or accidents involving exposure to equipment such as saws. Seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Number two, commercial pilots. This does not include pilots of passenger planes for major airlines. These are the guys that are flying planes or helicopters that carry cargo or lead air tours or navigate air ambulances. Uh, nearly all deaths and injuries in this particular category were caused by crashes. So, Number three, farm and ranch animal workers, including aquaculture. Uh, they have the third highest rate of death and 15 times higher than the average American job. The injury rates for this particular industry are not tracked particularly well because people who are self-employed or work on farms with fewer than 11 employees are not required to complete this data. So again, the, these numbers could even be higher. For I got that. kicked by a cow. It'll be okay. Yeah. I'll bandage myself up. And yeah. 
Number four, logging workers, which I think logging has always historically been a dangerous job. Uh, 13 times higher death rate than the American job, average American job, with a non-fatal injury rate of 191st. Contact with equipment, falling objects, and falls were their main causes of death. Number five, roofers, uh, 10 times higher than the American job, death rate. Injury rate almost twice as high as that of their average American job. Of course, falls are the leading cause of injury and death, which is sad because it's often preventable if they just use proper safety harnesses and stuff like that. Yep. Number six, first-line supervisors of farming, fishing, and forestry workers. These are the guys who oversee the people doing the real work. So it seems kind of weird. But usually the contact with heavy equipment, dangerous tools, hazardous weather, large moving objects, or animals, these guys are usually a little more hands-on, and so they're a little more involved. The, their death rate is seven times higher than the average job. Uh, number seven, agricultural equipment operators. These are the guys that are driving the big equipment, tilling, planters, harvesters, you know, and then feeding and herding animals, uh, five times higher than the typical job. And this is like farm workers earlier. Th this is also, you know, if they work for small farms or they're self-employed, they don't have to report those. So those numbers could be higher. Number eight, this, this one kind of caught me unexpectedly. I didn't expect this to be so high. Tractor trailer truck drivers. Hmm. Uh, this is uh, over the road truckers. Yeah, this is what we call a trucker. Uh, these people are the guys driving the big rigs and hauling cargo from place to place. Wrecks, of course, were the most leading cause of death, but falls and overexertion were the most common cause of injury. So I, I found that kind of interesting, which we were talking about that on the way home from Springfield the other day. What, as it was, I saw a big rig pass by and I got to thinking, or no, I saw a guy working on his truck. And he was climbing up on the back trailer. And I was like, well, I mean, I guess if you even fall from that height, what does federal regulations say? Anything over four feet, four feet is, yep. can, is dangerous. Well, and you think about the long term, I've known a lot of truck drivers through the years and just bouncing around yeah. in that cab for years, yeah. uh, it, it does trauma to, you know, your insides. So number nine, I mean, some things never go out of style, right? Underground mining machine operators. Here we are again, full circle. Uh, now, in 2021, it was the first time that job had popped up in a number of years. It, it, it's always been part of the federal rankings, but it had not been that high on the list because typically fewer than 20,000 people worked in those roles and fewer than four people died in any given year. Somehow, in 2021, 10 people died, and that brought it up to number nine on the list. That's because of 2020, we let all the quality control people Maybe, go, yeah. <laughs> and now there is nothing there. All the office workers were out with yeah. COVID. At number 10, farm equipment mechanics and service technicians, the people who repair and maintain farm machinery and vehicles, such as tractors, combines, irrigation systems, dairy equipment. It doesn't include mechanics who work on trucks and, and things like that, though. And their rate of death is about four times higher that of, of the typical job. So, I want to interject there. This, this is a personal notation. My great grandfather. Well, first off, my, my great grandmother to go back, she was, uh, she outlived multiple men and God bless her soul. I loved her to death, but maybe she was a black widow because most of the men met their demise. Obviously one in particular, my, my great grandfather was plowing a field in Iowa. And this would have been back like in the, I'm going to say 1930s fell off the tractor back into the blades oh. that were dragging said field the tractor as the story goes uh, these these are huge iowa farms you know like 400 acre tracks and, and stuff this drug him alive kicking and screaming behind for like a half a mile until the tractor literally hit an embankment a tree and and stopped they found him there he was still alive uh, they believed several hours had passed they got him out even got him to the house where they were getting ready to take him, I guess, to the hospital or whatever at that time frame. He, he did obviously end up dying, but I mean, imagine if you would. Obviously, and not in hygienic situations, yeah, dirt well, and stuff being yeah. just tore. I mean, and oh, horrific, horrific, horrific. To finish out the top 25, and I'm just going to list the rest of these, sailors and marine oilers. First-line supervisors of landscaping, lawn service, and groundskeeping workers. Personal service managers. I'm not sure what that means. Audiovisual equipment installers and repairs, which I can get that guy, you yep. know, falls off the roof again. Painters, construction and maintenance. Again, falls. Pumping station operators. Construction laborers. Electrical power line installers and repairs. I mean, it seems like yeah. it's obvious. 
roustabouts for oil and gas. I mean, that's a very dangerous job. Uh, maintenance workers who work on machinery. Use the lockout tagout. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Excavating and loading machine and dragline operators for surface mining. Plasterers and stucco masons. That one caught me off guard. I didn't think that'd be so dangerous. Again, Ele- I'm assuming because of the heights. Maybe? Yeah, I guess if you're working on a ladder. I guess. Just like, any job where you're up. Elevator and escalator installers and repairers. That, I think that goes that. without saying. Farm workers and laborers in the crops, nursery, or greenhouse industries. And last, seems pretty obvious as well, crane and tower operators. Yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to uh, look into some of the uh, best paying jobs in America currently as 2022 uh, onward to kind of help lighten the mood a bit here if you are so dismayed by our horrific uh, jobs that we've shared already. And I came across one that I'm a twisted person, Billy. It just put a smile on my face. And I'm, I'm like, what? Pet food tester. Ugh. Part of the quality control system for major pet food manufacturing is, you guessed it, a pet food taster. I'm going to assume that since this is a paying job, this isn't a pet that does the. No, this, this is, is a, a human. Oh, how do you get that job? Apparently, there are people that are begging for it. <laughs> Sorry, another dad joke. Now, you may be asking, why? Well, the answer is kind of simple if you think about it twofold. Number one, especially among the more expensive dog and cat food brands, uh, it is catered to our fluffy family members. So if you're going to do this job, you want to work for Fancy Feast. Fancy Feast, yes, yes. (laughs) Pet science, you know. Why would we not want to treat and try to make our little pets happy with a meal suitable for a king or a queen? You know, the diva. I have a diva dog, I know. You know, Bill probably makes fun of it, but. uh, Well, you know, I got my big dumb dog and then my smart dog. So, I mean, I do make fun of your little dog a little bit. I know you do. Behind your back. Most people do. (laughs) Big old guy like me and I've got this little fluffy cotton ball that, you know, often we even put in clothes, which I swore I would never do in my life, but. I said that too, and then somehow my big dog likes to wear shirts. Yep. He really enjoys it. If he sees one, he gets all excited and he, you know, jumps up and down. Well, the second point to explain this is uh, the truth of the matter is for lawsuits. Many homeless people can acquire cat or dog food at a fraction of the cost of people food. And it is obviously usually, or at least partially, in a canned form that can last for many months, if not a year. And just so you know, this type of job can pay $66,000 a year. Now, $66,000 a year, eat a little pet kibble, a little cat food, a little cat food sandwich. I don't know. It's pretty tempting, it, honestly. It, 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 you you kind of got to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Now, to kind of put it into perspective, the pet food taster, sixty-six k a year, is the also the average, they say, of a mortician. So if you had to pick between the two, a little kibble, uh, maybe, just saying. Now, another one I wanted to share with you. Another job option for you if you're a thrill seeker. And if you are willing, you could get paid. Are you ready for this? $20,000 per light bulb replacement. Where do I sign up? I can change light bulbs. Yeah, I've done that before. No problem. $22,000 a bulb. I'm going to assume these are in a horrible place. Well, one example is a gentleman by the name of Kevin Schmidt. Now, he changes a single light bulb atop a communication tower every six months in South Dakota. Each time he climbs this tower, he makes 20 grand. This tower, however, is 457 meters. That's just shy of 1,500 feet straight up in the sky. And to put that in perspective, maybe uh, somewhere in the vicinity of a 150-story building. And I noticed you said climb. Climb. So... Climb. There's no elevator. There is no elevator. It's not getting airlifted. He has he has a safety harness, and uh, I think they do have some assistance where they can pull a wire and you know maybe shoot him up kind of the center to get him there a little quicker until it starts to get more confined space, and then he is literally climbing the ladders to access the the rest of this. However, this is a very essential job to protect both the tower as well as airplanes that might strike the tower if that bulb burned out. 20,000 wouldn't be enough for me. (laughs) But still, he does that every six months. So you work two days out of the year, out of 365 days, and you take home 40 grand a year. Now, surely you could find another tower someplace and replace, you know, double that. You work four days a week and get 80 grand. 
Four days a year. Four days a year. My bad. Yeah, 40 days. Four days. Okay, well, when you phrase it like that. Four days a year out of 365 and would take home 80K a year. There's going to be a waiting list for a job like that, though. Just so you know, he does have a problem with insurance. Most people do not want to cover him. Yeah, no. No doubt. So there's that. I mean, one misstep, right? He's hoping that his family, his son in particular, does not follow suit into his father's footsteps for that job. Well, we hope that you have uh, enjoyed, at least we've raised a few eyebrows, if nothing else, of some of our shared, most deadly, intriguing, horrific jobs of both past and present. Thanks for listening, y'all. And remember, somebody's job's always worse. Mm, This tastes like beef. How do you get that job? Like... Well, this I'm dude sorry. makes sixty six thousand a year. Thousand dollars a day, you say? Thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> a year. And oh, oh, a year. that ain't worth just, it. No. Say a day? A day? If you experience like, bleeding, don't come to us. Yeah. Look, your product mangled my ding dong. <laughs> This golf club shaped 36 inch object that you shipped to me. Uh, yeah, I'm returning. These are the guys that are flying around planes or ambulances. What? When do you fly an ambulance? <laughs> when did this happen? I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms. Uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it, hopefully, as much as we do. Thank you very much.